Well, it is my privilege this morning to welcome Pastor Dave McAllister to our church. Just a quick little short bio for Pastor Dave. He's married to his best friend Kelly for almost 15 years. They have two children, eight-year-old Brandy and three-year-old Jordan. Brayden. 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 Oh, uh-oh. Messing up today. Dave served as junior high youth pastor over at Emmanuel Baptist Church uh, from 1999 to 2003. Most recently, has serving as pastor out at Samish Island Memorial Chapel for the last nine years. He's been involved at uh, Community Pastors Prayer Breakfast, uh, which is where he met Pastor Monty and Pastor Christian. Currently involved, participating and attending over at Emmanuel Baptist while he awaits the Lord's leading, next calling. So Dave, I welcome you up to open up God's word for us today. Thank you, Tim. Sorry to correct you. I just don't want Brady listening and saying, Dad, why didn't you say something? <laughs> and those are kind words. Those are true words. They better be because you asked me what to say. So they're all true. Uh, but thank you, Tim, for saying them nonetheless. And thank you to Pastor Monty. Uh, have been blessed to know him the last couple years as we've been involved in fellowship and prayer, uh, which was unfortunately interrupted by COVID. Um, and yet, nonetheless, he's continued to be an encouragement to me. And he and I went out to coffee the other day and just kind of talked about life and ministry and uh, I'm very encouraged by him. And, and so you are tremendously blessed to have Monty here. And thank you to the worship team. Uh, I kind of called audible. I changed our text for this morning, and yet the songs you picked couldn't be a more fitting uh, to sing How Great Thou Art. It's almost a requirement to sing almost every Sunday and the magnificent themes. For years I've heard about this church. I, I never planned on my first time being up behind the pulpit when I come to visit, yet I'm excited have the opportunity to bring God's word to you. Let me invite us into our text, Psalm 111, as you're turning there. Let me ask this. Do we have any musical files here? Any lovers of all things audio? I love music. Uh, my life could be easily set to a soundtrack. Uh, I wake up with a song in my heart uh, and, uh, and usually go to bed humming something that I've heard throughout the day. I love music, and part of the reason I love music is because oftentimes it teaches us something. You're familiar with the song, Cats in the Cradle, uh, Harry Chapin, that 1970s rock folk classic. Every time I listen to that, I'm tremendously convicted because it deals with this sobering theme of parental neglect. I can't listen to that and wish I was a better father. And there's other songs like that, uh, songs that maybe you're familiar with, that you enjoy them, not just for the melody, but for the message and for the kernel of truth that's found within many of those songs. Well, this morning, I want for us to listen to and consider one such song, a song that 
impresses upon its listeners one of the greatest truths known to man. As we come to our text for this morning, we're reminded that you and I know who God is in terms of his character and his attributes. We know that because of what he's done. That's, that's something that we know because we read his word. It's been recorded for us in his word. We have that combination of both natural revelation paired with special revelation and it is through that ladder that we hear of Christ. The Bible itself is so powerful and profound because it's an account of God's unending faithfulness to his people demonstrated by his many marvelous deeds. With that being said, there's no section of scripture that allows us to consider the works of God as vibrantly as the book of Psalms, and particularly our psalm for this morning, Psalm 111. Let me give us some background to the text. Neither the author nor the historical occasion for our text are noted for us. Nevertheless, the lyrics in this so-called psalm or song have so much to say. It's interesting to note its original literary structure is a 22-line acrostic corresponding to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and so the psalmist isn't building logical thought so much as he's highlighting particular themes. The psalm itself is intended to be a couplet with the subsequent psalm, Psalm 112, which itself focuses upon the man who fears the Lord. The psalm's focus in this psalm is upon the marvelous works of the Lord. And, and we know that because even as we skim our eye over the text, we see that word in, in half of the verses, works, works, his works, God's works. And all throughout this psalm, there are interwoven a number of specific works that the Lord has done all throughout human history. In turn, the psalmist reminds us that our praise of God consists of not only meditating upon, but also proclaiming such works as God's people. The author of Psalm 111 intends for us to consider the greatness of God as displayed in what he has done, or what I've dubbed this morning the works that inspire our worship. And so at this time, let me invite us to stand for the reading of our text, Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. 
Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to this text, we pray that you would write the truths of this melody upon our very hearts. We thank you for your word, for it is truth. It is a truth that sets us free. We thank you for the fellowship of this body and the privilege of gathering together and celebrating the one who has made us into your people. We are your people, Lord, and we desire to bring you praise. And so we pray that we would do that, even in especially as we receive the preached word. May your spirit empower me this morning to speak the truth. So that the gospel of Jesus Christ might penetrate our lives. And that we might know him for who he truly is. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. That's where we begin, a high point. The author begins with a call to worship, as it were. And and what he's doing is he's inviting us to to celebrate and to magnify God. This is actually how the, the next two psalms will begin as well. Psalm 112 and 113. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And this is key. This is important that we receive this invitation because sometimes we as human beings need to be prompted to praise. We need something to to light the fire beneath us or within us. Despite what we might be tempted to think, we aren't always naturally inclined to praise God. Oftentimes we can feel like life is too busy to praise God. Men and women, there's never a time that's inappropriate to praise God. There's never a good excuse not to worship God. Whatever season of life it is, it's always the right time to praise the one true God. When you got up this morning, the right time to praise. As you're driving out here to church, the right time to praise. As you sit here, it's wholly appropriate and right to be praising the Lord. And women, the life of the believer is intended to be a life saturated with worship. We're always to be worshiping the Lord, not just Sunday mornings, but every morning and every afternoon, every night and all through. Come, praise the Lord, he says. He goes on to now begin to personalize it, to show that these aren't just hollow words, that he himself has already followed the invitation, wherein he writes, middle of verse 1, I will give thanks. That's part of worship. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. It goes without saying that everybody has a passion. Everybody has that one thing that makes them come absolutely alive. You want to engage with somebody, just find that one thing. Everybody's excited about something in life. If you talk to a person long enough, their deepest interest and passions will inevitably begin to come to the surface. You know what the psalmist, of the author of Psalm 111 is passionate about? He's passionate about praise. He's passionate about praise directed to God. 
Here in verse 1, we discover the psalmist's personal commitment. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In other words, this is no half-hearted vow. This isn't some sort of rash promise. He's not simply phoning it in when it comes to his worship. No, I will praise the Lord with all of my heart. And David in Psalm 9 verse 1 expresses the same sort of sentiment. Wherein he writes, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I have to admit, it is tremendously easy for me to just drift through life and everything I do to just kind of do it half-heartedly. Maybe you feel that way as well. Maybe you as well find it surprisingly simple to be only halfway, mildly engaged with people and tasks and life. Maybe you feel yourself having some days, even recent days, maybe even today, you feel like you're just kind of phoning it in. Back in Psalm 103, verse 1, David declares, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Is that how we approach times of worship? Are we all in, or are we just kind of here, present, but just somewhere else mentally? I ask that because... We can do that. We can come into this place, any house of worship, and and be worshiping the Lord externally, no doubt, going through the motions, but internally be somewhere else, mentally or emotionally. You can be here and not be, really be here. And women, we can't afford to do that. We must not allow ourselves to do that. We can't permit our praise of God to be muted or subdued when it comes to praising Him, nor should it be casual or flippant. No, rather our hearts and our minds must be engaged with the very realities that God's Word and our corporate worship bring into view each and every Sunday. And continuing, come back to the middle of verse 1. Psalmist says, I will give thanks to the Lord in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Those are two very different terms. Come, uh, translated, I'm reading from the ESV. They've been translated as company and congregation. Two very different terms. Company in the Hebrew is the word soed, and, and soed suggests a, a circle of friends or advisors, what you might deem your, your inner circle. He says, I'll give thanks amidst my inner circle, the company of the upright, But he continues, in the congregation. And congregation is a a much broader term. This could be translated as assembly. The assembly of the righteous. I will give thanks. I will praise God with my whole heart amidst my closest allies and friends. But I'll also give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart amidst the, the, the broader family of God. Psalm 66, verse 16, the psalmist himself states, quote, Come and hear, all you who fear God. That's the congregation. He says, come and hear, and I will tell what God has done for my soul. That should be the attitude and activity of every one of us as we gather here to worship each week. You don't come to just receive, rather you come to give. And when you and I come together as believers, we're here so that we might serve one particular purpose. We come together so that we might 
testify to the work of God before the rest of the people of God. We gather each Lord's Day as the church in part to bear witness in the company of other witnesses. In a sense, this is a sort of courtroom every time we gather together and every one of us a witness of the faithfulness and greatness of God. And we each take our turns and sometimes our testimony is very similar as it ought to be. But that's why we gather. That certainly gives us a much deeper, more meaningful meaning for why we come to church. Psalm 95, one of my favorite psalms, begins like this. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Why? Why? Well, he answers that question, verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Men and women, therein lies the utter importance of, of corporate worship. That's why we open the doors. That's why we turn on the lights. That's why we prepare all week long for the service. That's the reason why we enter this building and we fill these pews. And some will say to me, well, really, I just came to see my friends. I, I came so I can catch up with what's going on in the community. Or I, I, I really come to church so that I don't miss out on anything. And usually the person saying that is battling intense FOMO, fear of missing out. Or maybe your attitude is this, well, I just come so I can be with people who think like me and act like me. And women, for many of the reasons that each of us comes to church, whatever it is, there's plenty of other feasible options by which we can try and have those felt needs met. But as far as God sees things, when we gather together as the church each and every Sunday, we're to come with one particular focus in mind and intent in our hearts, and it is to worship the Lord. To worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And we do that in part by giving thanks to the Lord with all that we are as we're surrounded by others who are giving praise to the Lord with everything that they have within them. But again, why? Why do that? I'm a big advocate of the question, why? I don't want to go through the motion. So why? Why should we worship God? Well, having issued an invitation in verse 1 to praise the Lord, the psalmist then proceeds to give us an explanation for why we should praise Him in verses 2 through 9. And here we find the heart of the text. What really stands out is seven distinct works that are to prompt our praise. Work number one, God's work of creation. Look at verse two. The psalmist says, great are the works of the Lord. Such a simple term and yet it has many layers to it. You could say numerous are the works of the Lord. More than you could even count, but but also great in terms of their profundity and their importance. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Now, typically when the Bible speaks of the so-called works of the Lord, it's addressing God's work with regards to creation. It's dealing with the things that God has made. We all agree with that, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Moses, when he wrote that line, didn't try and explain and lay out all the, all, all, all the proofs that there is a God. No, he begins with the assumption that there is a God because he knows there are God, there's a God. And he is the one who made the heavens and the earth. David touches upon the same theme in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1, wherein he writes, quote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. David says there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The heavens declare the glory of God. When's the last time a, a, a part of God's creation declared the glory of God to you? I mean, when's the last time you were somewhere? It doesn't even have to be in Washington State, although we live in a beautiful part of, our, of the country. But when's the last time a part of God's creation just stopped you in your tracks, took your breath away? When's that last time that, that simply by what you saw, what you were surrounded by, that you were forced, in a sense, to pause and reflect upon your creator? And women, there's a reason why. Because part of the purpose behind God's fashioning of this world and universe is so that you and I would be in complete awe of him. We stand there and we say, this is awesome. And it's awesome because the creator is awesome. In fact, that's precisely what's so sinister about the deliberate unbelief of men and women today in terms of their rejection of God and their refusal to worship him. Paul writes in Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, that the, he declares the fact that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They don't have a good reason not to praise God. God has given them a reason to praise Him. And women, the inherent design of creation itself uniquely inspires us to praise our Creator. The people of Israel realize that in Nehemiah 9.6, wherein they proclaimed with one voice, here it is again, together worshiping in the company of the upright, they declared these words, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. And that's what we do as we partake in creation, as we allow awe to, to well up within us, we enter into, at an earthly level, what is happening at a celestial level. The angels are celebrating and magnifying God as their creator, and we come along and we enter into that, and, and we share in that. Lest we've forgotten, allow me to remind us that God commanded the world, this world, and its surrounding universe to simply exist. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. That has got to be one of the most awe-inspiring declarations in all of the Bible. He just breathed it, breathed us 
into creation. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, became something. Which is why in Revelation 4.11, we hear the praise being given by the 24 elders, wherein they proclaim, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That is what prompts them to praise. It ought to prompt us to praise as well. David, speaking on a personal level, says in Psalm 139, verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And women, we are called to praise God. And the first catalyst, the first thing that prompts us to praise is God's work of creation. Work number two, God's work of providence. Look at verse three. The psalmist writes this. Full of splendor and majesty, those two words come together to to speak of regal kingship. Full of splendor and majesty is, is his work and His righteousness endures forever. The original Hebrew word that the psalmist used for works in verse 3, that's actually different from the Hebrew word that he used for work in verse 2. Yes, same word in English, but in Hebrew, very different. The the word for work in verse 2 focuses upon his work of creation, whereas his work in verse 3, what the psalmist is highlighting in verse 3, is actually God's work of providence. And providence is kind of a, a loaded word. It's not a word we use a lot nowadays. In his massive work, Biblical Doctrine, uh, Pastor John MacArthur Divine's providence is this. He, he describes it as God's preserving his creation, operating in every event in the world, and directing the things in the universe to his appointed end to them. And when we speak of providence, we actually, that, that, that idea includes um, God's sovereignty over the universe. His sovereignty over the the physical realm, the the sun and the moon and the stars, as well as his sovereignty over the nations and and the animals and and, and even our own births, our, our health and our life, and even God's sovereignty over our death. Listen, there's there's no such thing as good luck. I don't know who told you that. I don't know if you believe that or if it's subtly worked its way into your theology, but there's no such thing as good luck. Nor is there anything like like chance or, or coincidence or fate. The Bible speaks nothing of that. Rather, we are told time and time again that, that everything is intentional and, and purposeful when it comes to God, as well as when it comes to His unfolding, the unfolding of His will for our lives. When we speak of providence, we reflect upon such truths as Romans 8, 28, wherein Paul writes, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's what Paul's speaking of when he says all things work together for good. Paul can, can give us that promise. We can take it to the bank because it is God who is providentially working all things together for our good. All things. All things. And if there isn't a verse that I've needed to cling to for the last year and a half in particular, it's that. Unless we think it's just some random thought. Paul will later write in Ephesians chapter 1, 
beginning of verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And women, all things are working together for God's people because it is God who is making them one. Amen? The psalmist continues by saying his righteousness endures forever. When we speak of the righteousness of God, we're, we're speaking of the standard of God's own righteous character. In other words, he says, God will never do anything in, in your life or in my life that runs contrary to his perfect and holy nature. In other words, the Lord has no shady dealings in your life or mine. Rather, everything that God does in us and through us is in keeping with that which is right and pure and true. That's the second work that inspires us to praise the work of providence. Work number three, God's work of salvation. God's work of salvation. Look at verse four. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. And if we want to, lest we get confused here, if you want to insert a, a, a synonymous term, you could use the word wonders. God has caused his wondrous wonders to be remembered. And that theme actually, that verse actually speaks to this sort of cause and effect. God works in awesome ways and we as his people cannot help but be in awe. He says, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Let's come back to that word works or, or, or wonders. In the Old Testament, the wonders of God were most often associated with his works of salvation and deliverance. And women, when we speak of the work, God's work of salvation, we're speaking of, of God to the rescue in terms of his saving acts throughout human history. And it's safe to assume that the psalmist, as he writes these words, has on his mind the, the events of Exodus 14, wherein the people of Israel were delivered by God in this miraculous way from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Verse 13 of Exodus 14, with, the, with Pharaoh and the Egyptians bearing down on them, we read this, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And then fast forward to the next chapter later in Exodus 15, verse, beginning in verse 1, as they stand there, having been rescued by God, as they stand there on the shores of the Red Sea, we read this, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, and here's the song, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And don't miss this. He has become my salvation. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. The history of Israel is recorded in the Old Testament is littered with those kinds of events. That's one of the key ones. But all those times in which God is saving his people, each of them 
are, deliberate, are, are, are intended to serve as a sort of memorial of God's faithfulness. The psalmist doesn't just say that they've been remembered. No, God causes them to be remembered. In other words, when God works, he often does so in a way that he makes a lasting statement. There's no dot, dot, dot. There's no question mark. Rather, it's an exclamation point when God works. And every time God has intervened on behalf of his people, he has, in a sense, left a memorial of sorts upon the timeline of redeemed humanity. We sing of this sort of thing when we sing uh, hymns like, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, right? A very confusing line. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come. What in the world is that? I mean, where do I go on the, on the campus of Summit Park to find your Ebenezers? Well, what, when we sing of that, we're singing of the reality spoken of in 1 Samuel 7, 12, wherein Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. And he did so in order that he might commemorate God's mighty intervention on behalf of his people. We read that he set it up and then said, till now the Lord has helped us. It's a sort of line in the sand. Have you ever done that in your life? Has there ever been a time in your life when what's occurred has, only, has, has clearly only occurred because God was the one who did it? Have you ever felt like that? Even more so, have you ever looked in the rear view of life, rear view mirror of life, and said, God, you have been faithful to me all the way up until right now. And every breath I'm taking just is a memorial of your faithfulness. I have no doubt every child of God has at some point in his life seen the hand of God move on their behalf, either in a, in a major way or just in the small details. But I'd encourage you even today to sit down and, and think of that. Think through decades of your life, seasons of your very existence. I doubt you'll have to think too long before you begin to see how God has been sovereignly, providentially working in your life. All of it moving in one specific direction. Salvation. You know, women we may not experience some sort of Red Sea sort of thing, but God is always working to protect us, to preserve us, having brought us out of darkness and now ushering us into, this, into the glorious light of his kingdom. Work number four, God's work of provision. God's glorious work of provision. Look at verse five. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. This is possibly a, a reference to God's provision of manna in Exodus 16. Exodus 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my way or not, uh, walk in my law or not. And that marvelous act, it's always been one that's stood out to me, even in my early years, as we've had, we would have uh, uh, Terry Ogden in our children's ministry, and she'd pull out the flannel graph. I doubt we even use flannel graphs. 
nowadays, but she'd pull it out and she would demonstrate this. And, and it always just kind of captured my interest, what that would have been like, you know. I, I guess you get a picture of that in cartoons like uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. <laughs> and yet that one miraculous act of, of God providing food, it serves as such a practical demonstration of God's lavish love and grace. And women, God has promised to care for even our most basic needs. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner said, we praise one whose goodness is practical. It's practical. It's just such a fundamental, basic, everyday level of life. And this was certainly the experience of King David. In Psalm 37, verse 25, David admits, quote, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. It's part of, the, part of the, the strength of living a long life is that you have more years and more road to look back and say, God, you've always been faithful. When we're young, we're tempted to question it, but as we advance in, year, in years, we begin to say, God, how could I mistrust you? You're so good to me. And when Dave speaks of that, he's, he's actually speaking of God's promise to continually provide for his people. Do you realize that when it comes to the most basic mindset and perspective of the believer, there's really only two options? I'm going to make this really simple for us. You can either have worry or you can have a spirit of worship. A spirit of worry or a spirit of worship. And the two are constantly fighting within our hearts and minds. If you come in here and you are filled with anxiety, I have no doubt you are going to struggle to worship. But when you come in here and your spirit is full of praise, worshiping God, no, you're not sure how that big problem in your life is going to work itself out, but trusting in the Lord, when you do that, well, worry just seems to kind of dither away. We all battle this. Each and every day, each and every moment, am I going to be a person filled, consumed with worry? Or am I going to fill my heart and allow my heart and mind to be filled with a spirit of worship? Matthew 6, Jesus deals with this very issue in his Sermon on the Mount. Verse 25 of Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. He asks, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he asks this very convicting question, are you not of more value than they? It was D.A. Carson who wrote this, quote, God is so sovereign over the universe that even the feeding of a wren falls within his concern. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Rather, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added to you. And women, by saying what he says in his sermon, Jesus helps us discover something that we may have missed or even simply forgotten, particularly about our Heavenly Father. God's goodness is evident every day, namely by way of his provision of our daily bread. In Psalm 34, verse 9 and 10, David states, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. In Proverbs 10, verse 3, we're told that the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. You want to be prompted to praise? You want to be inspired to worship the Lord? Well, just reflect upon that bowl of cereal you had this morning or or consider it as you come together to have lunch with family. Because right there before your very eyes is a reason to praise. Work number five. Work number five, God's work of, let's call it establishment. God's work of establishment. Look at verse 6. The psalmist says he has shown his people the power of his works. There's that word again. In giving them the inheritance of the nations. And this speaks of the time when after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, Yahweh led the next generation of the people of Israel into the promised land. Which was actually in keeping with his promise to them back in Deuteronomy chapter 11. In Exodus 23, beginning in verse 30, reading of the promise of the conquest of Canaan, we read this. Quote, little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. And coming back to Deuteronomy 11, beginning of verse 24, we read, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. That's the promise God gives, Yahweh gives to his people. He says, Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you tread as he promised you. And texts like that, they actually remind us that our God not only delivers us from something, but, but that deliverance is often paired with our being ushered into something greater, all of which God does for his own glory. God wasn't, you know the story as well as I do, God wasn't content just to get them out of Egypt. Could you imagine if the story ended like that? They're just out of Egypt, well... What do we do now? I don't know, but we're out of Egypt. How are things any better? That's not what God was doing. That was just the first chapter of a marvelous story in which God is delivering them them out of something into something far more glorious. And again, God did all of that, not just so that life would be easier, but ultimately so that God would be glorified. And we know of this in ter- at, a, at a spiritual level, yes. Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter 2.9, wherein he declares, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you 
out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's that same idea, out of something and into something else. But those spiritual realities also bring with them physical realities. Namely, our future as Christians, which includes the possession of the new earth and the habitation of the new Jerusalem, as recorded in Revelation 21. That too is a reason to praise God. That yes, he has delivered us out of spiritual darkness, but there are physical promises given to us as God's people. And Lord knows we long for that day when we will no longer be in this world. No more masks, no more vaccines, none of that craziness. Just a new heaven and a new earth. I mean, even, even saying the term, let's please, Lord, come. No wonder John says that at the end. Having just considered everything he did, Jesus, come quickly. Let's make this happen. I'm ready for the next and best and final chapter. That's God's fifth work, his work of establishment. The sixth work that inspires our praise, God's work of instruction. Look at verse 7. The psalmist says, The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. Now here, the psalmist continues to draw upon these Old Testament events and themes. And, and here, specifically in verse 7, he's referring to the giving of God's law to his people at Mount Sinai. The handwritten tablets delivered to Moses, both of which contain God's commands for his people. You know, it's so easy for us to lose a right perspective of the Bible. It's so easy for us to just hold it in our hands and just think, it's just commands. We're just being told what to do and what not to do. And surely there's some blessing in there if I do the right thing. And women, the the word of God is so much more than just a bunch of rules. Yes, there are commands, but... As you pull the lens back, the greater picture is this. That the word of God is in part a a result of the overflow of the heart of God towards his people. They weren't just some arbitrary commands that, that God just randomly is spitting out at him, at his people. No, rather God, as a holy God, desires holiness in his people. And, and so he invites them, he calls them into a relationship out of which those rules do flow. That's the word of God. It's the very heart of God. And we can lose that perspective. We can also forget the true power of the scriptures. Jesus, speaking to believing Jews, said in John 8, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Anybody here want to be free? Free from sin? Free from guilt, free from shame, free from addiction, free from all of that that hinders you and holds you back. Do you want to be free? Then go to the Word and be reminded of what God is doing for you and for me. And chase off that feeling that God just has these arbitrary commands. They're all deliberate. They're all intentional when God calls us to these things. He is ultimately showing us what it means to be a holy people. 
Oftentimes we'll say to somebody we love, well, I just love you as you are. Thank God that God doesn't leave me as I am. Rather, he's making me into something far more glorious. And women, we as Christians are called by our master to worship God in spirit and in truth. And, and that under, that, that, therein lies the importance of the accurate preaching of God's word. But it's not enough just to hear it. We have to do it. James says, don't look in the mirror and then walk away forgetting what you look like. Rather, consider what the Lord has not just called you to be, but realize that everything that God commands, he also promises. Which is why Paul can say, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You're not the architect. You're not the master builder. That's God. And God has no half-finished projects. They all finish, and they finish right on time. don't remember the last time I had a project that finished right on time. God's work of instructing us is, is intended to elicit praise. It's why we oftentimes run to the book of Psalms as we read that. Our, our hearts are filled up with reasons to worship God. That's what makes Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the entire book, so beautiful because the, the chapter is an ode to God's word. It's a, it's, a, it's a litany of personal reflections and, and prayers. The whole thing comes together as this glorious literary symphony of 176 verses, all of which have one thing in mind, the Word of God. It's a lengthy yet thoughtful consideration of the written Word. And women, the, the Bible is unlike any other word, any other book, because it accomplishes what no other book can. I don't care what your favorite book is. It will never trump the word of God. Those books are filled with half-truths at best, but God's word is perfect. And it promotes the glory of God, its very author. Look at verse 8, continuing to address the work of God's word. The psalmist says, quote, they are established forever and ever. In other words, God's decrees were made to last to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. In other words, what God has said in terms of the record of his word, he said for all time. Because the Lord doesn't change, Malachi 3.6, his word will never change. That means what God says is right will always be right. And, and on the other side, what he says is wrong will always be wrong. It's not just right in the past, but wrong today or or vice versa. And what is more, God's word's not part of some conversation or dialogue. That's the, that's the garbage of postmodern pastors or, or preachers or teachers. They're certainly not preachers of God's word. That God has his opinion and I have mine and we come together and somewhere in the middle lies the truth. That's not God's word. It's not part of a conversation or a dialogue that we are then able to accept or reject based upon our own opinions or, or perspective. The psalmist tells us here at the end of verse 8 that God's word is to be performed. 
God has definitely spoken to us. And so all that's left to do, I guess, on our part as his people is to comply with that. But to do so, as the psalmist says, with faithfulness and uprightness. That's God's work of instruction. His seventh work, the seventh work of God that prompts us to praise, God's work of redemption. Look at verse 9. He says, He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Here the psalmist concludes his listing of God's various works by highlighting His work of spiritual liberation. And verse 9 actually alludes to Yahweh's sending of Moses to Egypt and the subsequent exodus of the Israelites out of the land of their oppression. Which is why the psalmist can say what he says in Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8, quote, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I believe this to be God's chief work, his work of redemption. Because you and I, too, have been redeemed from our bondage to sin and to the devil and to the world. We've been redeemed, ransomed out of bondage, ransomed from slavery to self, so that we might now begin to serve the Lord in the newness of our immediate and eternal life. Both God's love and redemption are unearned and undeserved favors that He gladly and sovereignly bestows upon us as his children expressly through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I submit to you that is why he can forgive sinners like you and I. I don't have to know your litany of junk and where you've been and the poor decisions you've made. God can forgive you. And that is a message that no other book declares. That is a message that no other group declares. It is the people of God who come together and celebrate God. And one of the chief reasons we celebrate the Father is because of the Son and because of what Christ has done and is doing. Peter tells us, I read part of Peter earlier, but First Peter Chapter 1, verse 18, he says, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I said earlier that God never delivers us out of something without delivering us into something. Well, later in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter actually tells us, where he's bringing us. Wherein he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So that, listen to this, so that he might bring us to God. So that he might bring us to God. That is why you have been saved. That is why you have been redeemed. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's why you've been saved. Not so that you're rescued out of hell and allowed to go into heaven. No, you're invited into heaven because that's where God is. And Jesus came so that he might bring you back, not to a place, but to a person. To the person of God. 
Is there any greater reason to praise God than what he has done to redeem us as a people? And because of God's holy name and character, which is alluded to at the end of verse 9, and because of all God's aforementioned works, which we've considered this morning, because of all of that, the psalmist concludes by stating this. Look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. The psalmist began with a call to worship. He now concludes with a call to fear. In other words, he's saying because God is who he is and because he has done what he has done, how ought we to respond? How shall we then live? Fear him. And women, verse 1 was an invitation of praise, but verse 10 is actually the condition for praise. It's the very requirement for proper praise of God. We must fear him. In order to worship the Lord, we need to do more than just know about him. Rather, there must be a holy reverence within our hearts for who God is and for everything that he has done and is doing and, and will do. That's actually one of the reoccurring themes of all of the wisdom books in the Old Testament. And Job's, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all of them strike this note time and time again, speaking of the fear of the Lord. One of the most familiar ones, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You want to be a fool? You want to be an idiot, a spiritual dummy? And just turn away from wisdom. Don't heed God's instruction in your life. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. We're told that we are to fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. In fact, time and time again, the Bible tells us that it's a lack of fear and reverence before God that serves as a distinct marker of the unbeliever. In Psalm 36, verse 1 we read, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. And women, our praise of God begins first and foremost with our fear of God. It's an absolute necessity when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our sanctification. In Psalm 25, verse 14, we're told the Friendship of the Lord, what a great word. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. Psalmist says at the end of verse 10, his praise endures forever. It's another one of those repeated themes, the word forever. Why? Why is praise of God forever? Why does it have this sort of eternal element to it? Well, because God himself is eternal. And because God never changes, and because God never ceases to be God, his being praiseworthy never changes or ceases. In a very real sense, the praise that begins in the hearts and lives of God's people here on earth, that will ultimately continue on into heaven. As we then, that glorious day, inhabit the place where God himself dwells. And it'll be forever. Forever. Are you looking for a reason to praise God? 
Are you running dry? Do you feel spiritually just dull? And do you find yourself tempted to go through the motions? To come into this place any given Sunday and, yes, sing the words, but just feel like you'd rather be somewhere else? Or to be singing these words, but but maybe you've just forgotten kind of the emphasis, the driving force? Well, here the psalmist gives us in Psalm 111 seven very clear markers, very clear reasons to praise God. In closing, people often have the attitude that asks this, what have you done for me lately? And we certainly don't exclude God from that. God, do something for me. I know you've done something in the past, but do something new. I need something new. Listen, as, as his child, the Lord is, he is, in fact, doing something in you and for you every single day, but he has done so much for you. Past, present, and on into the future. That's certainly guaranteed. And whether you see it or not, whether you realize it or not, whether you reflect upon it daily or not, God is still doing it. That's the glorious thing. He's not dependent upon your praise. He's not so needy that that if you don't praise him, he's just going to kind of, well, you don't really care. Thank God that his work in my life is not dependent upon my ability to respond to that praise. Praise God he's not sitting back in my life or yours just twiddling his celestial thumbs. Praise God he's not checked out, disengaged. He's not that sort of father just watching from a distance, apathetic. God's not idle in your life. He may feel idle to you. But the truth of the matter is God is always at work doing what's necessary to bring about his sovereign will for your life and for mine. And women, we will never, never run out of reasons to worship the Lord. He's made us. He's preserving us. He's saved us. He provides for us, which includes our daily bread as well as our future glory. He instructs us as his children. He's redeemed us. And all of it and more he's done for his own glory. Therefore, our lives as believers must be centered on worshiping Christ. Isaiah uh, Isaiah 64, verse 4, we are told from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. One of Paul's great benedictions, Romans 11, wherein he declares, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so Summit Park Bible Church, as you continue to gather together in this place each and every Lord's Day, may you all be reminded of the distinct reasons that you have to worship God from a spirit of fear and reverence and deep appreciation. O Lord, our Lord, 
how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's get about worshiping him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We need this. I need this. I have the spiritual cobwebs shaken out of my mind and my heart and to be reminded that my life, my very existence is intended to be given to praise, not occasionally, but daily. And so moment by moment, Lord, would you remind us? Remind us of your praiseworthiness. Remind us of how much we have to be thankful for because of you. There truly is no God like our God. And so, Lord, we thank you that you receive our prayers. Though they come from filthy lips, Lord, we thank you that you use our words to glorify yourself because you alone are worthy of our praise. It's in Christ's name we pray these things.